Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Fearless Paranoia podcast. Thank you for joining us. I am Brian, the cybersecurity attorney, joined by... And I'm Ryan. I'm a cybersecurity architect. And we have a special guest with us today, Matt Kanaski. Hey, Matt Kanaski here. I have been in technology sales and engineering for roughly 20 years across a myriad of solutions. Started off with connecting everyone to their data, moving their data to the cloud, and now securing their data. So I have traversed this ecosystem for quite some time. But my my viewpoint or vantage point is mostly from a sales and marketing and customer adoption point of view. Well, Matt, thank you for joining us today. We've got something that Ryan and I have been looking forward to for quite a long time, predictions. We're going to talk about 2024 and thank merciful God we're keeping this as close as possible to cybersecurity, not anything else that most people think about when they hear 2024. Yeah. Travis, Kelsey, and Taylor Swift, we get married in 2024. Number one prediction. But the marriage is fait accompli. I'm talking about the actual takeover of the entertainment industry and then then the world. Yes. We're here talking about what we think is likely or is going to happen in cybersecurity or related to cybersecurity. And you know what? Right off the bat, I think the only fair thing to do, since Ryan and I haven't flipped a coin or anything like this, the only fair thing to do is to throw our guests to the wolves. Matt, we're going to start off with you. What is your first number one prediction for cybersecurity in 2024? Excellent. Thanks so much. I love a challenge. <laughs> so, you know, I am a subscriber here. I've listened to your previous episodes about artificial intelligence, and I think the application of artificial intelligence taking phishing, vishing, smishing, and social engineering attacks to the next level, becoming indistinguishable or very hard to identify some of the common threats that we've come to rely on, making it easier to identify are going to be eliminated and very hard to discern in 2024. Now, among those, would you include basic deep fakes and things like that? Deep fakes or, or even simpler to just voice emulation and taking voice clips and re-emulating those into fictitious voice conversations. I've never felt so good about having two different podcasts that I continue to have hosted on the internet as when I hear about the advancement of technology of being able to take voice samples and turn them into phishing tools. It's just, it's phenomenal. It's, it's a real boost to my ego. <laughs> so next level AI phishing and social engineering tools. It's going to be a brave new world of pig butchering, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of rolls right into my first topic then, so I'll just hijack this and slide the bar over to me. With the rise of AI and next level phishing and all of the other ishings that we threw in there, I think that uh, one of the major problems that we're going to see in 2024 is the increased effect and impact that it has on cybersecurity teams that are working to kind of defend against these things. We're going to see cybersecurity teams not just fighting against hands-on keyboard hackers and social engineers, but we are now going to see AI enter the mix and we're going to see a lot more automation, a lot more efficacy behind these types of attacks. And so now your standard kind of run-of-the-mill uh, traditional cybersecurity teams are going to be facing, again, not just hands-on keyboard hackers, but AI and effectively fighting a robot war themselves. And It's a cybersecurity version of the Clone War. Well, exactly. We're going to start to see these cybersecurity teams end up with one of two kind of end results and that's either they are going to adopt similar technologies to turn it into fighting robots with robots or fighting AI with AI or we are going to see them spread so thin that we're going to see an acceleration of the already well-known impacts of burnout on these cybersecurity and IT teams. As these teams either succeed or fail to adopt these types of new technologies to kind of meet that inertia in the middle, any failure to adopt those is eventually 
eventually going to continue to spread these teams much more thin across much larger attack surface, a much more violent attack surface, and one where the attacks increase exponentially in quantity, that eventually it's going to become less of one of those desirable positions. Not that being in cybersecurity was ever hugely desirable anyways, but there was always a lot of fun for those of us that were there. But this strips away some of that fun and really makes the battle look like you're running a lot more uphill than you kind of have in previous years. So you think it's probably going to rely a lot on the question of whether these AI tools being used by hackers can be at least met somehow by AI tools being deployed in defense. Yeah, I think what we're going to see is there was an old comment that I saw back in the day on a poster walking through somebody's hallway at some business that was, it's not the big fish that eat the small fish, it's the fast fish that eat the slow fish. And I think that's going to come into play a lot in this space because what we're going to see is that even the big fish in the space aren't necessarily safe if they stick to the old methodologies and the old mentalities. Anyone that's not willing to swim faster and learn how to stay on the front end of where the cybersecurity landscape is going is going to suffer and the big fish will just suffer more than the small fish because they will have more to lose, they will have more surface to try to cover, and they will find themselves behind the game much quicker and it'll be much harder to gain that ground after the fact. Let me throw a little bright side on this though. (laughs) There is a positive spin on this for a 24 prediction, which is the massive adoption of the security providers trying to defend for good. And they are equally diligently integrating AI into their solutions and into all of their product offerings in preparation for this robot battle that we know is coming and is here. They're thinking of the same thing, and they are trying to combat at the same pace at which the attacks are coming. So that is another prediction, is that AI will be used for good in mass adoption in just about every product out there. If they don't have initiative of integrating AI now, their product or their solution or their company may become extinct. Absolutely. And I hope you win the tug of war in this space here, because if there's anybody that wants my prediction to be wrong, it's me. Because if you're right, we fall into the crisis version of what we just recently discussed last week, cyber burnout. And I'm pretty sure, Ryan, that involves you staggering down the street with smoke coming up from your head and something behind you on fire. And it's just not a good scene. Probably a good movie poster, but not a good scene. Well, I'm going to jump to my first prediction, and it's going to be uh, what I'm calling the rise and rise of shadow AI. One of the more interesting things that has come out of this past year's widespread adoption of the commercially available generative AI and LLM systems is this thing where you really shouldn't be using them for a lot of very specific tasks, like anything for your job. Uh, If your job involves any kind of proprietary information, trade secret information, any sort of confidential or sensitive information, anything that may involve protected information as defined by any number of state, federal, local, ethical, company-driven, international laws, regulations, policies, prohibitions, then you shouldn't plug any of that into ChatGPT, but people are. And so the previous rise of shadow IT was when employees were buying and using devices for work without involving IT anywhere in the process. And so you were leaving your IT to, I don't know, the Genius Bar and Geek Squad, basically whoever happened to set up the personal devices of these people. So this transition, this new term of shadow AI is people using AI for their job, regardless whether or not they are expressly allowed to, whether they are expressly forbidden to, or whether the employer knows they're using it at all. It's going to happen. It's going to continue to happen. And, you know, with all the different tools coming out, I would say there are some serious issues involved when you don't know what happens to the data that you plug in to get these results out of generative AI systems. If you're keeping business or confidential information secret depends on it not going into those systems, you better work really hard to make sure your employees know that. Yeah, and I think one of the big points that you're making too is we're not talking about AI necessarily 
necessarily in general, right? Because there can be good AI systems, and there can be regulated and controlled AI systems. It's really pretty trivial nowadays for a business to set up an AI system that they control, where they maintain what's behind the LLM and where they maintain the data that's behind it. But that's not really shadow AI, right? That's something that's set up by your business. The shadow AI mm-hmm. is when we start to use these public-based systems where they're actively training these systems on these inputs that are going into them. So this would be even things like beyond ChatGPT, like Microsoft just rolled out Copilot across a whole lot of yep. areas. Copilot sales, Copilot security, Copilot, whatever random Copilot they come out with next. And don't forget, Google just released their most recent version of their generative AI system that they swear this time yeah. is better than ChatGPT. Everybody's going to swear that something's better than ChatGPT every time. But again, it really comes down to is the AI system good or bad? It comes down to how is the data that is feeding the beast used and who's putting that data in there? And who has access to the black box? Because even if your company has an AI system that is supposedly cordoned off, do you know how the response is dictated? Do you know how the data that is collected to build is kept and maintained? That's going to be the tricky part. But no, shadow AI is not necessarily always going to be bad, just like shadow IT wasn't always necessarily bad. It's in the darkness. It's in the shadow. You don't, by not knowing how it's being used or for what, that's where the real risk is. Well, and being that a lot of them are simply web-based and Mm -hmm. they're not even an application that needs to be installed, it's pretty easy to engage in an input. So even if you have a vendor due diligence process and a way to implement new solutions, this could be easily bypassed because there really isn't any conventional method to even engage and start using the process. And it is bewildering to me at end users' willingness to to just blindly adopt and just put information into these things with no idea of where it's going, where it's being stored, who has access to it, who's protecting it. How can we be assured that that database is protected and encrypted and secured that even if they have the best intentions, how do they prevent Mm -hmm. a breach on their LLM? You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. For more information on keeping yourself, your family, and your company protected against cyber threats, check out the Resilience Cybersecurity and Data Privacy blog. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and subscribe using any of your favorite podcast platforms. Also, please share this podcast with anyone you think would find it helpful or useful. We rely on listeners like you to help get the word out about this show, and we appreciate the support. Now, time for some more cybersecurity. Well, I guess one of the most important things here is to make sure that everyone in the company understands the impact of cybersecurity. And Matt, if I understand right, that kind of goes right into your next prediction here. You got it. Cyber awareness, well, everywhere first, but cyber awareness in the boardroom really is going to be the advent in 24, where it's germane or it's innate in every conversation we're having, every business decision we're having, every risk assessment we make in regards to an employee or an application or an acquisition or a client onboarding, those conversations are becoming much more prevalent and potentially implementing more risk-adverse decisions. Really, the commentary here is that awareness at the executive level and then making that part of every decision they make as a business and also ensuring that security is represented in the boardroom, right? That the CISO is there and the CISO is part of that conversation. And I think you made a really interesting point there is that typically, historically, CISOs have kind of not had a full seat at the table in a lot of these 
kind of board activities, or at least... Well, it's a relatively new position, too. Well, and they, yes, they kind of sat behind, like, a CIO or a CTO, if they were even allowed, really, at the table and just kind of weren't courted off to the side. But nowadays, especially when we look at incidents like what just happened at Clorox, and if we look at the SEC issues against the CISO from SolarWinds... And the criminal action against the security chief at Uber. Yep, and so you're starting to see that where the onus was always kind of left at the top of the chain before, where it was always a CEO or somebody else that kind of took the brunt of the attacks from regulation or from other partners and anything else, they were kind of looked at as being the major responsible party because they were the primary control party. A lot of that is starting to kind of find its way down the chain now towards CISOs, where they are getting a lot more responsibility put on them, both just internally but externally as well, to be the responsible party to not just handle the fallout of breaches and other attacks, but they're now actively a part of controlling the policy and dealing with uh, accepting the responsibility of the fallout there. So I think that we will see, you know, not just more awareness in the boardroom, but I think hopefully we will start to see a louder voice coming from those technology-based C-suite partners as part of those conversations going forward, just because of how important technology is becoming those conversations. Matt, is that something that you see as the CISO? And I'll put the CIO in there as well. Are they not just having a greater voice in the C-suite, but also potentially having more stakes in the game? Definitely something that I'm seeing, and that can impact some really challenging things like a product development roadmap or a merger and acquisition strategy, expansion into new markets. These things that are very aspirational business goals that may take longer than planned financially because of the appropriate due diligence that simply must be done or all the gains could be losses. And simply that mindset, that influence, that awareness is drawing pause not just from the CISO barking at everyone, but actually the other executives starting to recognize that significance in all decision making. And so I think you touched on a really good point there too, when you started to get into at least a touch point on my next topic, which is uh, kind of tied towards the M&A space in particular, as we talk about some of those conversations and CISO and technologies. My next prediction is the cybersecurity field in general, especially cybersecurity providers and solutions providers, I think we're going to see a continued consolidation in that field. So consolidation is nothing new. M&A is nothing new for most businesses. A lot of it's economically driven. But I think now we're starting to see that the sprawl of the cybersecurity space has gotten to be quite large. There's a lot of cybersecurity solutions providers. There's a lot of uh, managed service providers. There's just, there's a lot of tools in the field. And in talking with a lot of CISOs and other technology partners, other architects in the industry, one of the biggest challenges that people have with protecting their business is right now it takes sometimes 10, 20, 50, 100 different tools to really cover all of your attack surface, to cover all of your use cases and all those different spaces. And that usually means that you have to have subject matter experts for each of those different tools, each of those different services, or you have to have vendor due diligence for all of those managed relationships in all those spaces. And I think that we're going to start to see a continued consolidation, not just of the tools into individual providers, but all those different tool sets starting to kind of consolidate into more of like a platform approach and whether that's a platform from the service and software level or whether that's a platform of managed service providers starting to offer a larger breadth of services to try to cover more of that attack surface and more of those challenges that businesses face in the field. I think that we will just see those spaces not so much just even consolidate and kind of narrow in general, but we we start to see them becoming more robust so that the solutions and the partners are 
just able to cover more space for a provider and really kind of ease the ability for businesses to onboard those technologies or onboard those partner relationships without having to deal with that continued sprawl in the space. Yeah, I'll, I'll add on kind of what I'm seeing in that cybersecurity consolidation is, you know, like you said, a platform approach or a fabric approach, if you will, where they are picking up point solutions and then developing them and weaving them into this centralized fabric or management pane platform, if you will. And it's much needed. There are many solutions out there. It's part of the value of a managed service provider, a managed security provider, is that they're going to take on that burden of managing those multiple tools, but you add customers at scale and it just becomes a new problem for the MSP. So more of the providers that are taking the approach is a welcome approach. And there's always the two different schools of thought of best in breed point solution and get 27 different ones or one provider that has 27 solutions solutions, that's pretty good in every category. Mm -hmm. And uh, ideally, we could get both, but uh, that's a very tall task. And tying back to your thing, cyber awareness in the boardroom, Ryan and I have talked about this at length before, that one of the dangerous things in cybersecurity is that a C-suite that is somewhat disconnected from their cybersecurity team, their IT team, their CISO, their CIO, is frequently going to be scared by and therefore respond to the thing that they just heard about. The CEO comes in shaken, having not slept the entire night and insists on buying this specific security software that's designed to handle this specific thing that no one in the CISO's team knows how to operate. So you have to get someone to become a subject matter expert. And then you have to figure out how this new tool integrates with all of your other tools and the answer to that is usually badly. And hopefully this increase in cyber awareness in the boardroom will allow the CISO to be at least a gatekeeper and say, this is not a problem that we need a new tool to address. What we have addresses it properly because it wasn't known about two weeks ago when it first hit, but it's been updated. Do you think that's the case? If possible. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. You'll, you'll never get a straight answer from us because it always depends. Hey, that's our line. That's the legal profession's line. Don't steal that from us, man. We need it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It, you know, if possible, yeah, it's been mitigated within the tool set. And, but ultimately, yeah, it needs to become a strategic decision to discuss what do we have, what do we need to adopt, and how do we get there, and do we insource or outsource, and how do we get further faster, right? And that's turning into a business decision as much as a technology decision is. You know, do you staff it or do you just buy it now so you have it tomorrow? Like if you're that scared of it, you're not going to implement it next week, right? So you're going to have to get a partner to do that, right? But if, if you have a strategy to get there and it was already on the roadmap, then you go, we're good. We're implementing it next week as we planned. And I think we run into a space too where we have to remember there's some businesses that don't have big C-suite. There's some that don't have boardrooms. We've still got the small and medium-sized businesses that are facing these same threats as well. And so the consolidation will work out actually in their benefit in a lot of cases, I think, because again, a small business, somebody, you know, 10, 20, 50 people can't manage a whole suite of tools and they can't manage tons of vendor relationships because they don't have the capacity, they don't have the manpower to be able to do that kind of thing. And so seeing this kind of continued consolidation towards a platform or fabric approach is really going to end up benefiting them in the long run so long as it doesn't price or move them out. I think what Matt said before, 27 tools that do the job at least adequately, when you don't have time to research the 27 that do them independently, let alone operate all 27, a huge deal. Right. So so they have to look for opportunities to find flexible and creative ways to cover the same attack surface that larger businesses do by you know mm -hmm. employing more of these tools. And so they have to look for these types of partners and other things to help them out with that. And I think that kind of jumps right into your next prediction. Yeah. What are they going to be required to protect against? So the prediction about 2024 that I feel most solid about is that the federal government will continue to not get around to passing any major sweeping 
privacy or cybersecurity legislation. We will still see numerous states adopting general data privacy laws. And there are now a number of states that have their own general privacy laws. California introduced what I personally think is, if done right, a phenomenal step in the right direction with the Delete Act because it deals with the big data brokers. There simply was no law dealing with these massive, massive companies that have everything there is to know about you from everywhere. And one of the crazy things is about these data brokers is their number one source of information about you is other data brokers. So having a law in place to at least address what information they're allowed to keep about you, I think is a good thing. And I'd like to see at the very least more transparency in that industry. One of the interesting areas of law that I think we're going to see, and this has both privacy and cybersecurity connotations to it, is that more states will attempt to regulate age verification systems for internet services. On one end, you have trying to prevent minors from seeing pornography on the internet. On the other hand, you also have several states and the federal government trying to come up with a way to require social media companies to make sure that people are 13. Everywhere else says it's either 16 or 18, but we've picked 13. I think we'll see a rise in, especially at the state level, legislation requiring age verification systems online. These systems are potentially privacy nightmares. And also they're almost all third party private vendors. There's very little transparency in the way these systems are chosen by the state. And also as probably wouldn't be surprised, very little in the way of requirements for security that these systems have. So they could very easily become massive targets. They will have tons of protected personal information. Even if it's just your driver's license, your driver's license number is considered private in the United States by federal law. That's a big deal. That I believe is what we're going to see on the legislative side, but we will not see any sweeping federal law is my prediction. And the reason for that is actually a very you know basic political debate between a private right of action and preemption. There's a lot you can read about that debate. It's pretty boring, but that's really all it boils down to. They disagree on whether those two things should apply, and that's why we don't have a, a federal law. You're listening to the Fearless Paranoia Podcast. We're here to help make the complex language of cybersecurity understandable. So if there are topics or issues that you'd like Ryan and I to break down in an episode, send us an email at info at fearlessparanoia.com or reach out to us on Facebook or LinkedIn. For more information about today's episode, be sure to check out fearlessparanoia.com where you'll find a full transcript as well as links to helpful resources and any research and reports discussed during the episode. While you're there, check out our other posts and podcasts as well as additional helpful resources for learning about cybersecurity. Now back to the show. With no requirements, it is kind of important that we have at least, um, I'd say, good standards being adopted nationwide. Matt, your next prediction really kind of gets into where we're headed in the next evolution of the adoption of cybersecurity protocols. Yeah, and this is one that has been a discussion point for probably two years in earnest in many of the conversations I've had with clients, and it's zero trust going mainstream and zero trust actually being implemented and adopted within corporate environments, maybe to the disdain of some users, maybe to the disdain of some leaders within the organizations, just as long passwords did when they were first introduced. Still do, I think. But However, yeah. it, it's it's essential. And, and it's more of a mindset, right? It's more of a just kind of an approach that you use your technology assets, not necessarily a thing you just buy and turn on. And I think 24 is the year where we get serious about it because there's too much 
root cause analysis that points to that as one easy thing that could have been done to prevent a lot of damage. And damn near free, right? A damn near free thing to do. And you, you gotta just start provisioning it. Start setting it up. Start turning it on and start the motion towards zero trust and not allowing privileged access, not allowing administrative rights, not allowing everyone to use whatever app they want to simply because they just don't need to. And it's really not that inconvenient if you just have a conversation with employees. I mean, so it's a change in behavior, which I deal a lot with law firms and law firms are run on a partnership model, which is primarily a seniority-based system. And there are a lot of very senior attorneys in the practice of law. Changing behaviors can be a very difficult thing. But one of the biggest points that I've made to them in pushing zero trust is, yeah, it's going to be hard to change your personal behavior, but it's also not going to cost you anything. Every one of the systems you currently have allows you to turn this on. It's not just that it won't cost you much of anything. There might be some hidden costs in there, but if anything, not implementing it will end up costing you more in the long run because when you start to fall subject to the impacts of not having a zero trust approach, in a lot of cases, that's equivalent to if you were to run, say, a whole building with a bunch of different offices in it, but you have all of those independent offices locked with the same master key and there's only one key to get in through each of those doors. Well, as soon as somebody gets a hold of the copy of your key, they get in through the front door, but they can get into every other door as well at the same point in time. So when a threat actor or somebody gets into your environment, would you rather that they have to come in and jump through numerous hurdles, potentially setting off different alerting systems, different countermeasures, and giving your security teams that are already spread thin, as we indicated earlier, time to respond and time to evict the intruders? Or would you rather give them an immediate key to get into all the things? Because as soon as they walk in the door, with the implementation of AI and other automations, systems, it's almost trivial if you have access to all the systems to be able to immediately exfiltrate everything you need. And at that point, it doesn't matter when you kick out the threat actor, they've already gotten everything that they need. And there's really no point to them hanging around any longer. And once you've exfiltrated all the goods out of a company, the damage is done. And you really can't undo that damage. There is no like going into the threat actor's bag. And you know, if, if you chase someone that stole a purse, you could eventually hopefully get the purse back. But at this point, the purse is in not extradition area or it's halfway around the world in seconds because that's just how data travels. With putting zero trust front and center, you're giving your security teams a few extra tools to be able to slow down. You're never going to say that a system is bulletproof. There's never going to be a no breach incident ever again for any company. Any company that thinks that they run Fort Knox and that they will never get breached is kidding themselves. But the key doesn't come from protecting the perimeter any longer. It comes from creating perimeters all throughout the business so that you can allow your tools and your people the ability to interact with those intrusions in a way where they can actually limit and mitigate the amount of damage that that is caused. Ryan, you have a nice, calm, relaxing prediction for your next one in 2024, right? Oh, yeah. To feel good. Yeah, because nothing is as calm as every four years in the United States when election time comes around. (laughs) Nothing says calm like, yeah, an upcoming federal election especially. And I just did a webinar not a few weeks ago on this very topic, but one of the things that we saw, you know, back in 2016 is we saw a little bit of election interference here and there from, say, Russia with the, the IRA, the Internet Research Agency, where they were kind of abusing social media. But it was kind of a very man 
manual intervention at its core. There was a lot of manpower involved in that. 2020, we saw a little bit more automation. We saw kind of an expansion of the players in the field, and it wasn't just primarily Russia. We saw others get into the game as well. 2024 is going to be a whole different ball game, though, because we're going to see a little bit of the same kind of lead up that we saw from 2016 to 2020 in that there's going to be more automation. There's going to be even more players as part of the field now that are starting to kind of engage in those efforts. You're talking about manipulation efforts. You're talking about actual attempts to manipulate the voters. To impact the election, yeah, at the voter level, exactly. So like I said, 2016, it was they were making up fake social media accounts and trying to just get in front of people on social media because social media was a big way that people go to to look for information about the election and to build their own views on how they want to approach the election, to do research on candidates, etc. In 2024, we're going to see AI get in the middle of this and not even just directly like the robots are going to be out here spreading information. It's AI is going to be doing like what Matt discussed on the very first point. We're going to start seeing things where AI takes phishing, smishing, etc. and makes that much harder to discern from like the old Nigerian prince phishing back in the day where there was a lot of tells and things and it was really easy to identify that this was an attempt to manipulate you. Now these things are getting to the point where it's really tough for even some of the really well-trained cybersecurity professionals that look for social engineering and are hugely trained on identifying these things to be able to discern what's real and what's not without numerous levels of validation behind it because AI has gotten so good at crafting these things in such a human manner that it is going to make the ability to produce social media content and fake news content and things that's going to look as legitimate as the legitimate news sources that we've kind of come used to trusting over the course of many decades. And threat actors from around the world, especially nation state actors that have things to benefit from the outcome of our elections here, are going to employ these technologies in a way to try to sway the elections either towards one candidate or another, or in the case where you might have some nation state actors that are playing a zero-sum game where it doesn't matter which candidate they get in office. So in that case, maybe the actual goal isn't to sway one candidate or the other, it's to sow social discord throughout the populace of the United States or yeah. uh, any other country in particular, because in like this, let's say the case of China, where the last few elections, China hasn't really had a candidate in particular that has been like pro-China in any particular way. So there wasn't a lot of benefit from them looking at one side or the other, but they're looking to raise their flag on the world stage as being a stable world leader. And they want to and on Taiwan. do that in part, well, in part by making themselves look stable and providing policies that look stable, but they also need to do that by eroding the image of the current yeah. world powers that exist. And if you can sow social discord throughout the United States and take half the country and turn them against the other half, now we just look like a big infighting family. And very few people are going to look at us and go, oh, well, that's the world leader that we've come to know and trust. And that's going to be the stability that we want to see moving forward to kind of guide the future of policy, uh, foreign policy, etc. And it starts to really, even from their position being totalitarian, maybe that starts to look like a fruitful policy to kind of follow. It's almost the outrunning the bear. You don't have to outrun the bear. You have to outrun the person next to you. And so if they can make themselves look a little bit better than us, 
mission accomplished. Yeah, so I think while a lot of these other, like, especially nation-state actors have really kind of used manipulative means in the past to impact our elections one way or the other or in the middle, I think they will, they all see the benefits of using AI to really improve the efficacy of those efforts going into this election. So I think that if we don't find dramatic ways to use AI to ferret out that AI manipulation, we are going to fall subject to that manipulation in hard ways because it has become very clear that it's easy to sway large portions of the populace with information, whether it's accurate or not. There's a lot of people willing to jump on board and pick up that torch and run with it. We don't have a lot of time left, so I just want to real quickly get to mine, but it jumps neatly off of that. And my prediction actually is that in 2024, generative AI, whether it's manipulation, misinformation, or simply just not real, the use of generative AI in the 2024 election will be considerably more successful at the state and the local level than it will at the federal level. The federal level, you have a lot more money on both sides and at least have the ability to limit the impact of misinformation on people who are at least not likely to believe it right off the bat. On the local level, you have a much wider array of issues. It's not even necessarily a clear Republican versus Democrat thing. You also don't have the ability to monitor all of these channels for misinformation, nor the ability to quickly and rapidly turn around a response to it to make sure that it doesn't take hold and have a negative impact. And I think that given the low cost of using generative AI and the number of people who have demonstrated a willingness to use it in a way that is not objectively dishonest, but less than wholly truthful, will really put the true American system, which I I think you still see most clearly at the local level of one candidate versus the other candidate, whoever shakes the most hands wins kind of politics, it's really going to challenge that. And I think that's where we're actually going to see the most negative impacts. Excellent. Well, we had a lot of fun today kind of going through uh, all of these predictions for uh, cybersecurity and where we see it going throughout the course of the next year in 2024. It is undoubtedly going to be a wild ride and quite a life-changing year where it's going to be really interesting to see how many of these predictions that we've laid out before you guys come to fruition. Equally as exciting to see how many of them were flat out wrong on, but uh, hopefully it's not too terribly many. In any case, on behalf of Brian, and thank you, Matt, again, for coming out with us today. Uh, This is our first episode with a guest. I'm Ryan, and we just want to thank you guys for joining us for another episode of Fearless Paranoia, the podcast where we aim to simplify the topics of cybersecurity, make it a little bit more consumable and manageable. We encourage all of you out there, please go ahead and tell everybody you know about this episode, tell everybody you know about the podcast in general. It is uh, through your participation and through you guys helping us spread the word that we get the opportunity to go out and bring this information in front of others in the world. You can reach out to us by heading over to our website, fearlessparanoia.com. You'll find our podcast available uh, on any of your major podcast networks. You can also find a bunch of good information on our partner site, resiliencecybersecurity.com. It's through your guys' love, listening, and participation that we're able to spread this good word out here. Thank you for tuning in today, and uh, we wish you the best. Thank you.